This is the Leadership and Insurance Podcast, brought to you by FinPro Search Partners. Insurance companies are businesses and they need to look for the long term and be sustainable. We went from zero to one and now it's going from one to a hundred. Insurance as, as a concept, as a kind of service, is brilliant. The execution is what we're looking at now. I think the companies that are going to succeed are the ones that are going to understand and master the art of intent. When we talk about innovation, we lean too heavily to think about technology and we don't think about creating a culture of innovation. I think innovation is essentially continuous improvement of existing processes and platforms and product, right? It's got to be easy. It's got to be seamless. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leadership and Insurance Podcast on the Emerging Tech Series. I'm your host, Gavin Savage, and today I am very lucky to be joined by Nathan Milford from Pumpkin Pet Insurance. Nathan, welcome. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thank you for uh, uh, having me, and I'm glad we've finally been able to connect up. Yeah, yeah, it's been... Uh... Feels like it's been in the pipeline for a while. Um, sometimes I think people think I just say that, but you and I have been speaking off camera for a long time. We had the pleasure of meeting in, in New York um, mm. over the Christmas period. And uh, yeah, super excited to have this one in and, and discuss um, all things pet insurance and, and innovation in the space. Um, I'm ready to nerd out on some pet insurance. Yeah, exactly. And maybe some technology as well, but um I guess for the listeners, um, uh, over to you. I think it'd be great if you could introduce yourself properly in terms of your position um, at Pumpkin, and um, and also leading off that, you know, an introduction to your background generally. You know, going all the way back, how you got into tech, and how you kind of navigated into the into the world of insure tech. Sure. Um, so I'm the CTO at Pumpkin. I've been with Pumpkin for four years uh, as of December, so four years in a month and change. Um, it was a zero to one startup. You know, we were incubated by uh, Zoetis and Boston Consulting Group, and then they handed the keys over to me and a couple other lucky people. And now we're helping pets get you know best care and uncompromising care is, is what we're on about now. Um, before that, I was uh, at a reg tech or a fintech where we did compliance monitoring for credit cards and reputational damage. Uh, Prior to, so enterprise SaaS, I've been through that. For that, Shutterstock, I did um, was two sided marketplace at that point in time. It was a you know post early post IPO on up to about eight nine hundred people in the company. Um, for that, I was ad tech at Outbrain. Um, so I worked as a remote engineer and dealt with some acquisitions and building a team in the states there. And for that, it was. A long smattering of uh, film uh, and theater and, you know, odd jobs here and there. That's my background. So um, I uh, grew up a lonely kid in Missouri uh, with no one really near me uh, in the uh, 80s. So uh, what, what is the, the term? The zennial? Uh, <laughs> where I'm in that, like, uh, Oregon Trail generation where I grew up with computers, but uh, social networks weren't around to ruin my childhood. So I'm, I'm very concerned about that for my own children. Um, so I lived in a basement, uh, my parents' basement, and had my brother's computer. Uh, and he wasn't interested. And I would break it and try to fix it before he got home. And that's how I got good <laughs> at computers. Um, in the meantime, uh, I did all sorts of just random IT and coding and rack and stack. And I've been all over, all up and down. Um, basically to pay for my film and, and theater background. So 
I've worked at a bunch of regional theater and made a couple of films and I've worked on a bunch of very awful, um, you know, gospel hip hop music videos that are sort of formulaic. Um, and I just sort of got to a point where, um, you know, I enjoyed film and I enjoyed storytelling and I enjoyed theater. Um, but, uh, you know, getting up at four in the morning to make someone else's vision uh, isn't easy every day. <laughs> so uh, I just decided to sort of go back into the tech world and you know, it's been pretty good for me so far. I've enjoyed it. Awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a very non-traditional, uh, well, I mean, maybe not, but I mean, it's not the traditional route into uh, tech yeah. and, and engineering and um, I know you'd kind of we'd said a bit of this off camera, you know, talking about the, you know, running because you it's it's really quite deep your experience within film and theatre. You're probably playing it down somewhat for this podcast, but um, you know, running a film set and then transitioning into running a tech team similarities mm -hmm. or oh, very similar. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, whether it's even a small indie set and kind of like a startup, and you got to deal with you know, let's say New York apartments where there's only so much, uh, you know, 15 amp circuits and all the walls are white. You can't drill into the wall and you still got to make your pages. You got to be able to make it through the day. And so everyone's just got to pull together and figure it out. Feels like a startup on a larger set. The role of like, so I operate as a director of photography or a cinematographer. Sometimes I'd be a gaffer and I'd rig lighting and things like that. But, um, the fundamental purpose of, let's say cinematographer is to be able to take a vision director's vision, a story you're trying to tell, something you're trying to communicate um, mm -hmm. and work with artists and craftspeople with different disciplines to synthesize and deliver that vision, which is what we do in engineering. Like it's, it's um, you have a goal or a strategy, you have a CEO who wants to be able to uh, articulate or change something about the world. And like, I get to work with, you know, data scientists and DevOps engineers and front and backend and full stack engineers to be able to coordinate their efforts with designers and other partners across the business to be able to tell that story, pumpkin, whether it's, you know, optimizing code or deleting code, or in the end, it all really comes down to telling that story or delivering that experience. So it's, it's very similar. Um, you got to deal with, you know, all different types of personalities and proclivities and stakeholders it's it's very similar and then uh, mm. moreover like um the other thing i think about a lot is on the theater side so my background even before that was in theater um when i think about building a team i think about casting you know it's sort of if i'm let's say doing hamlet um it's very much uh and i think i told you this anecdote like last time yeah. we talked um you know when you're bringing in engineers you're wanting to look at like the right stage and the right mindset and what to them excellence looks like, like where they get their dopamine hit. Are they the type of engineer who wants to solve a puzzle, but didn't care how the user is going to use it or the type of engineer who ultimately wants to, um, doesn't care how the sausage is made, but as long as people enjoy the meal type of thing. Right. So you sort of need a mix of that. And like with my non-traditional background with computers, um, you know, I have a deep appreciation for people who can show up to a meeting and maybe they can describe, you know, the Byzantine general's problem in distributed systems with a mathematical proof, but also there is room and it is important um, for there to be the type of person who can talk about like Henry V, you know what I mean? And tie that metaphor to speak to other stakeholders, right? That sort of diversity of experiences and views, like when we talk about diversity, inclusion, things like that, it's very similar 
um, in engineering, having all these different backgrounds, whether it's your education or other um, life experiences, it really does help you tell a better story, let's say, or bring different things to your customers. Um, mm. I always get along really well with uh, designers and, and people experience because I feel like the tech, that's what it's for. <laughs> mm. Fascinating and how it transitions but the way you describe it, it, you know, as seems very seamless in terms of similarities, to be honest. So, yeah, super interesting. And, you know, someone that loves, you know, building clearly amongst not just engineering, but as you mentioned, you know, you love working with design and products, um, you know, really creating that. I think we touched on it again in our face-to-face -face meeting, that psychological safety and yeah. building highly sophisticated systems, you know. Um, anyone that's not looked at Nathan's profile, he calls himself the Willy Wonka of distributed <laughs> systems. And <laughs> and uh, like, what was it that attracted you to? Because coming from the fast, ever-changing, highly scalable world of the enterprise SaaS world, what was it that attracted you to? You know, the the world of insurance and and uh, and pet insurance specifically. I specifically wanted a challenge. Um, I'd been through a couple different business models and. You know, uh, before I went to Pumpkin and I was looking for my next thing, it was between Pumpkin and, you know, more of a developer tools, machine learning pipeline sort mm. of kind of product. Um, and not to say that those trivial, but I, I kind of knew how to do that. Mm. Um, I knew how to build tools for developers because, like, I've been one and I kind of have a lot more empathy, but I've never built a purely direct-to-consumer product, um, even mm. though... It's only part of uh, Pumpkin's channel strategy. Yeah. Um, but also just, you know, I like pets. <laughs> I think <laughs> that insurance can be a net good. And it's 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 meant it exists to enable things that wouldn't ordinarily be possible without insurance. Like there's a lot of misunderstanding of its function. But I think, you know, providing insurance and providing the ability for people to do things uh, that they wouldn't ordinarily have been able to do and for their pets and their pets' health. Like, you know, it's the first time I've been able to really work for like a really mission-driven type of company, you know, not just selling widgets and things like that. So I, I take the insurance journey very personally. Yeah, yeah. And um, look, before we kind of get into it, you know, there'll be many people on that listen to this podcast specifically um, who know who Pumpkin are, but probably be great before we get into everything if you could give a bit of an overview of the the mission, the vision, um, and what the business is about at, at Pumpkin? Yeah, I mean, our, our primary objective is to be able to give better health outcomes for pets. Um, our sort of immediate vision is getting to, you know, let's say a half a billion dollars worth of claims care paid out. Um, yeah. Our particular channel and our focus is with the veterinarian, right? So if you're dealing with, you know, auto body or some other insurance experience, you're, the vendors you're working with or the network of people you work with, like, they, you kind of generate leads for them. You know what I mean? You can send people to them. For us, like we're not necessarily part of how the veterinarian thinks day to day. And it's a tough job. Not, and when I say veterinarian, I mean the whole clinic staff, the practice manager, the vet techs, people all over the place. Um, you know, they, they suffer from uh, uh, compassion fatigue. Um, like there's a lot of really gruesome stats about <laughs> hours they work and um, the tough choices they have to make because people can't pay for their pets and their pet care mm -hmm. and deal with an accident. So um, we effectively want to be able to create a referral network within veterinarians. You know, like today when you buy health insurance, right, you just go, at least in the States, you go with what work 
provides and you go from thing to thing as you move more. Here, if a veterinarian says you should have pet insurance, that's a win for us because there's like 150 million pets in the States and like 3% of them are insured. So it's under penetrated market. I think in the UK, it's like closer to 20 something, 30%. Totally different relationship with insurance, but also the ecosystem of vets is, uh, I'd say more mature. Um, mm. Here there's consolidation, but for all intents and purposes, um, we want the veterinarians to trust us. We want to be aligned with the veterinarian and we want to be aligned with the pet owner, right? Because the three of us together are trying to help a pet. Um, they wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do it without the veterinarian and the veterinarian, you know, the pet owner has a lot of trouble in many cases doing it. Like $10,000 can go away really quick uh, yeah. in certain markets. So if we can be aligned and transparent and, you know, when we send a customer into the vet, uh, you know, the veterinarian may not even know about pet insurance many times. Um, the place where we want to get is just being there and having pet insurance be part of the conversation and normalizing just the, you know, the the statement when you go to the front desk at your vet. Um, we wanted to see what's your pet insurance, basically, because um, mm. we're not even at that place in the evolution of like the sort of line of business. Mm. You touched on something really interesting in terms of comparatives to the UK and the US, but you know how how do you kind of does Pumpkin have capacity? Are they like an insurer, or do, do you partner with major carriers to insure? Like how, how is the how do you describe them as like a digital MGA? Is it like how, how would you describe them? The model? So, so we're 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 set up as an MGA, and we work yeah. with an underwriter. We have a shared underwriter, IAC. Um, we're okay. sister companies with a couple of other brands under the JAB. Right, right, right. Which is a very recent um, acquisition. Um, so, you know, some fun facts for you, and I thought you'd appreciate this one. The first, this is all from uh, source for everyone, uh, Forbes advisor. The first insured pet in the US was Lassie, uh, the, <laughs> the famous TV call in 1982. Wow. Now, today, dogs in the US, this is all, dogs make up the majority of um, 5.36 million insured pets in the US. That's about 80% of insured pets are dogs compared to cats. Maybe that's another conversation, but there's a lot of pets. Um, two you thirds... do really well with cats, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, our wonderful experience team, you know, we're just a more attractive brand, I think, to pet to cat owners. Yeah, interesting. And, and two thirds of US households have a pet as of 2023. And you touched on it there. How many pet owners have insurance? About 4% of dogs are insured and 1% of cats. Mm -hmm. Like that figure you touched on in the UK saying there's about the numbers are about 20 to 30%. Yeah. But why, why do you think so few people still in the US? And, and look, even in the UK, it's still incredibly low. Why do they not have pensions? Is it is it an education piece on where to get it? Is it cost? Do people not value the the relationship they have with their pets like what do you think it is well i, I think it isn't about uh the relationship with the pet um part of it is just education and understanding i'd say that in the united states people have a very different relationship with insurance than they probably do in european countries um we don't have like socialized insurance and things like that um mm -hmm. from my perspective um veterinarians the ones that do see the benefit feel it they feel like um, people are coming in more often. They're utilizing like the services of the vet more often, right? But it's still underpenetrated in terms of how do we project that value out to the veterinarian and tell that story? 
and getting them to ask the question. Um, mm -hmm. I think in a broader stage, I think a U.S. relationship with, let's say, human health insurance versus mm -hmm. what pet health insurance is, is kind of different, right? Pet health insurance is a PNC. Like in most states, it's regulated as inland marine, right? Um, it's not even its own sort of special category in many states to be able to be dealt with. So to be able to innovate there, to be able to change the way that it's covered, to be able to do, um, you know, same day reimbursements or to be able to offer it structured differently, you have to get it through all the different regulators mm. to be able to change it. But people go in when they go to our website and they read it and they think it works like their health insurance at home. Like they can just show up to, show up to the clinic um, and say yes, no, yes to a thing and then leave and then be billed later, which is, it's a reimbursement model. Got it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more friction, I'd say, in terms of like utilizing it. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's, it, it is relatively new, but it's a market that's growing exponentially year on year. Like, do you feel like even now with the progress that's been made from the likes of, you know, Pumpkin and, and of course, there there are others that are worth mentioning, but you know, again, most will probably know who they are. But it is really quite a handful of insurtechs that are have been doing it for the past five to, to ten years in terms of providing that gateway into innovation within pet insurance. Like, what do you feel like? It's a space that still needs a lot more um, startups, innovators, entrepreneurs, insurtechs to enter into. Like, and if so, you know, what are the unique things looking back in your journey that you think now they have to consider when entering the, the pet insurance space, like what still has to be improved for you? So there's, I guess, um, two questions there. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ecosystem problems, right? Like it's a reimbursement model. So like if I'm going to utilize pet insurance, I got to walk into the clinic, right? And I don't know if it's going to be covered because I don't, I didn't, you know, I'm not a lawyer or an insurance expert, so I can't read my, I'm, you know, from the point of view of the pet owner, um, it just says dental, right? It's covered. But that doesn't mean, doesn't mean radiographs. It means a lot of different things. Um, I'd say that every clinic has some sort of workflow or system, a practice management system. So if they just wanted to be in a place to where they could click a button and then ship an invoice to us to be able to process, right? There are many barriers because like the PIMS uh, ecosystem is very fractured, right? Mm. Even amongst large chain clinics, um, Banfields, VCAs, like there's not a wild, uh, like it's not homogenous in terms of what tools are using. And a lot of them are like on-premises software, right? So yeah. if I were to be able to like install a driver or something on the clinic network of a small mom and pop vet, you know, I would have to be able to provide some support for them to be able to ship that stuff to me. So like there's 30 something on 40 something on clinics in the United States. Um, it's a tall order. So there's definitely an ecosystem and um, segmentation problem. It's like a fractious environment. That's one of the larger barriers. The other part is, um, you know, when we first started Pumpkin and I was, we started off as a white label and we we're on our journey to become an MGA. We needed to pick or build a system of record. Um, we ended up building our own mostly because for two reasons. One, we have a wellness product that we wanted to be experientially similar, but since it's not regulated, it had to be separate and paid from separate accounts. So there's a lot of details there that required us to just not use, you know, something off the shelf. Um, so we had to build it. But the other pieces, there at the time, 
there was only one pet insurance specific software stack. Um, and I think it was owned by a prospective competitor at that point anyway. So we didn't really want to go that route. Mm. Pet insurance is PNC insurance, but it is also compared to other ones, high frequency and low severity in terms of the claims. You get a lot of little claims. Yeah. Right? So the software needs to be able to deal with that high volume. It also is document heavy, right? We work off of an invoice and a medical record. So getting into becoming a pet insurer, you need to sort of think very caref carefully and clearly on how this line of business will be different from, let's say, any other one that you're doing, live or whatever. Um, mm. Historically, there have been a lot of, let's say, large brand PNC insurers uh, who are like, okay, we'll go do pet. And yeah. they'll hire pet people, but they'll use the same sort of processes, software, uh, ways of thinking. You know, pets are emotional. Like, there's not a lot of things that you're going to insure other than your life and your children um, that has the same sort of emotional quality to it, right? Um, maybe jewelry or keepsakes or things like that. Um, so it has an additional dimension. So every claim filed, you know, to the customer does have a high level of criticality, even mm -hmm. if the volume it gets lost. And so when you're treating with the customer, you need to be very deliberate and clear and transparent as well as with the veterinarian. Um, because you sort of need that, uh, I, don't, I don't know the, the, the right way to phrase it, but you sort of need that, um, I want to say touch of humanity in it. <laughs> yeah. In your experience. Mm -hmm. um, and not just have a bunch of automated emails that come out of a system when you're dealing with that volume. And so you got to build a system to accommodate that. Hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and in terms of how to move the needle, you know, you've said that from an ecosystem perspective, that sounds like a big culture shift that needs to happen there. And it's about how you can affect um, that. I mean, the, the distribution model at Pumpkin is, is unique in the sense that you kind of touched on it's D to C, um, but also you, it's kind of like the way I see it is like a kind of D to C to B as well, because you're working yeah. with the, the veterinarians as well. And mm -hmm. like, you know, in terms of the last few years, you know, companies like Pumpkin and, and again, others that we could mention that have led the way to a degree, like are you, mm -hmm. are you surprised in terms of uh, the amount of, the amount of D to C pet insurers that have been funded in, in recent years or, and if, you know, if so, what would you also, you think that's impacted the, the pet insurance space to really kind of blow up in the sense that it has at the moment? Like, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. Like with, with yeah. that total market, with that penetration, like you can definitely go in and not feel your competitors. Right. Um, except for maybe at the clinic at the point of sale, like you're competing for brochure space and stuff like that. Um, I'd say that, um, you know, VCs, private equity are all getting involved and, you know, second to AI, right, uh, back type startups, like, you know, pet insurance is distinguishing itself, I think, at least within the insurance market in terms of, you know, I get coverage and I get a bunch of other sort of trade uh, emails and newsletters and like pet insurance is a common theme there. And it's because it's a hot market. Um, I'd say that for Pumpkin, um, you know, we're targeting sort of, uh, and our mission is around comprehensive best care, best outcomes. So I'd say that we are in that sort of mess trying to differentiate ourselves by not having people show up at the clinic with like a $500 deductible and like a $2,500 limit and then being mad at the 
veterinarian and us yeah. that it doesn't cover their surgery. I think that um, finding out where you play in the spectrum of value and how much coverage you have, I think is going to be where people sort of play. Mm. Um, I think that you'll have a little bit more aggregation across, you know, say Mars or JV or whomever, right? Um, who's sort of aggregating and snatching them up um, and sort of having different sort of uh, brands or levers that play. Uh, mm. to the and you know speaking of levers like in terms of you touched on you know mentioned ai um just as a passing there but you know i was i was interested in the in the kind of the, the what levers in terms of technology have been the most successful you know when you look back on you know the the, the pivotal moments from you know the technology standpoint what do you think the greatest levers have been on the business at Pumpkin in terms of technology for you guys? Ooh. Um, what is the best piece of the best technology approach? I guess, I, I guess, yeah, just in terms of like when you look at the journey, you know, what have been the kind of the, the as I say, the, the greatest levers in terms of technology? Um, Honestly, it's just been keeping things as simple as possible. I think that, yeah, you know, the you know, we wrote everything in Python and React because, you know, you can't swing a, I don't know if I can say this as a pet you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a developer in New York. Um, um, uh, who knows a little Python, right? So like if I would have um, built our entire stack um, on top of, you know, a more traditional line or something, or I know that uh, some people will build something on top of Dynamics or on top of Salesforce or something like that, you know, mm. while we're still trying to figure out um, what the right thing is for our customers, right? Not necessarily product market fit, but like really about the experience and iterating. The technological choices that we make that are valuable are the ones that, you know, allow us to like get there quicker than our competitors and not yeah. be locked up into multi-year contracts and be slowed down by like, well, it's a specific technology or some domain specific language. Um, you know, so we choose a lot of sort of simple technology approaches. I mean, we're, we have AI embedded in the product in certain places, and we've got plans to expand that. But, you know, at the end of the day, those are almost always things that we're putting in place in service of um, simplifying how we deliver things rather than making them more complicated. Mm. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's clear that yourself and the, and, the, and the business have focused on simplifying the experience, you know, both from a kind of CX perspective, but also from a, a back end perspective, working with the veterinarians. Yeah. Like, in terms of, is there anything that you're, again, just because you've been through this journey and, and it's not done, I'm not suggesting that it's by any means, you know, you've completed pet insurance, but when you look at it now, is there anything that excites you? Like, you know, for me, um, my brain kind of ticks me, you look at the world of uh, kind of IOTs and, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe wearable tech for, for pets and, you know, mm -hmm. like in terms of opportunity going forward, like they say that, you know, one of the big, un I think one of the big overestimations in a startup uh, when I'm speaking to CEOs, because as you know, you know, I'm in recruitment and when I'm asked to find a CTO, it's like we need a CTO and he can solve all our problems and he'll build the technology mm -hmm. and that will take care of everything. You know, and, and it's, you know, we all kind of know that building technology doesn't just solve everything. Um, but is there anything that you you could see or envision that you're particularly excited about in terms of opportunities for, 
you know, integrating any emerging technologies into the insurance policies within the pet sector? Is there anything that well, you're I mean, to think? You mean in, in terms of telemetry and, and things like that that allow you to do better risk rating? I mean, yeah, I think that's exciting. Sure, I think that that's inevitable. I think mm. utilizing more and more machine learning techniques, um, language models, things like that, um, to streamline claims processes. Sure, um, I think everyone's trying to do things around personalizing their experience or you know bundling their product in different ways. Um, Place in, in the end, the thing that I want the most, um, and it's a myriad of technologies and approaches to deliver this, is I want that sort of, um, I want to give people that that's a sort of an Uber moment. Like first time you used Uber and you're used to taking cabs and you got to pull out the money. First time you get out of a car without paying. And then you're like, wait, which is, you know, it feels a little weird and it's jarring. I want to give that to like every pet owner in the world. I want them to like walk in worried and then walk out like with a healthy pet or a treatment plan, the things that are going to enable that are, you know, more sophisticating, more sophistication in risk rating, um, more sophistication in using, let's say, uh, you know, satellite uh, imagery and classifying, oh, this dog lives in a rural versus a, you know, uh, urban area. So we can change the rates or we can be more predictive about the type of conditions or diseases that are going to come from that. That's fine. I think that'll change pricing and structure, but in terms of just delivering for the customer, mm. uh, a lot of it's just going to come around claims automation, PIMS integration, and then other ways of being proactive about being in the pocket and educating the consumer at the same time as the vet. So like if I can pre preemptively tell them, uh, hey, oh, it looks like you're going to the vet. You should walk in and ask about these things because we cover them. Um, like the veterinarian is going to be super jazzed because they're gonna be like, oh, I wasn't going to ask about that because it's and ask you to do that because it's expensive. And the pet owner is going to come up like being able to utilize their plan more effectively. And then in the moment, it can be approved and then they're out the door. All of that together, if I can get that done in my tenure at Pumpkin, I'm, just, you know, like I'll be the happiest guy. That's what I want. <laughs> I want that like super uber moment. <laughs> and do you think that's why that kind of that, fantasy of the super uber moment within pet insurance do you think that's the the reason why certainly in the pet insurance sector the insure techs do have you know it's not competing against each other you know it's, it is about cooperating working with the yeah. large insurers yeah. the carriers but do you feel like that's why the the insure techs have an edge in terms of this space because they have the ability to kind of freely integrate and and, and innovate the way you've just suggested there no, yeah, I mean, but there's, I mean, there's a natural, um, like, say, virtuous cycle, right, um, between large carriers and players, um, like, and insurtechs. I think insurtech, you can go out, you can iterate, you can be fast, you can test, you can try different things, you can mm. find out what's successful. Like, that ecosystem is effectively supported by the prospect of tying that back up into much larger carriers, right? So, like... Yeah. It, it sort of like feeds itself. So I, I think you can't have one without the other. I think mm. the last place where there's difficulty is, and I, you know, is being able to deploy technologies in a way that's understandable and acceptable and transparent to regulators, right? So yeah. if you're going to deploy machine learning models, they need to be explainable, or you need to build your architectures in very granular ways so that, you know, the different pieces sort of work together in a way that's explainable. Um, 
I think, you know, right now, like the way that uh, rating happens in almost every pet insurer is just, you know, age, breed, and location, right? Multiply mm -hmm. factors together and then you get a rate. Um, there's so many other ways that we can improve upon that. And we can look at the other lines of businesses that they're out there um, that use more sophisticated approaches to underwriting. Um, there's not, I think, a lot of pressure yet to change in the pet insurance space, right? But mm. it's coming. It's definitely coming for us to be able to get, you know, more granular and deeper in terms of how we like price risk. Mm. And, and then the other, the other kind of question is back to... up the big carriers, but go ahead. Yeah, no, and the other question is there, you know, do big carriers even want to play in this space? Because, you know, it's they, there's many different articles and there's many different predictions, but by 2030, it's estimated that it's going to have a market cap size of, you know, 20 plus billion. And, you know, these carriers are operating in 80 to 100 billion market sizes. So it's kind of like, do they even want to play in that space? And because for an insure tech, that's huge, but maybe for them, it's just not maybe it's just too much work for the for the return on investment and technology and and everything else i mean you can run you can build and run your pet business like it's insuring property um and i think that just based off the inertia of being a big company with big budgets and um a large reach like you can you know upsell from it or to it and that's fine um I think over time, you're going to have limitations in service. I think um, when you think about like one of the differences between like a startup e insure tech approach versus um, a larger corporate enterprise approach, it's problems we're trying to solve, sure. Um, but I think also, I'm trying to find a, the appropriate word to articulate what I'm getting at. There's sort of, I don't want to sound snotty, but I might. Okay. So like, um, <laughs> there are IT based cultures. Yeah. And then they're engineering cultures. Product, product uh, is, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, through necessity, through scale, through available talent, through available technologies, you get to a certain size, you've got to glue big things together. You've got to take, mm. you know, your claim system, hook it to your reporting system, and your polling, and you've got to hook all these things together. And the job is integration rather than curating experience. Right. And that goes beyond just the technology stuff. That's like, well, we're going to get a bunch of TPAs and, you know, near shore, offshore. Like, so by the time from a customer perspective, um, you are dealing with someone who's in systems or in companies away hmm. from the people who actually are the name on your policy. Right. Uh, and th that creates natural barriers to the experience and to, you know, visibility on where to innovate and where to invest. Whereas an insure tech, like, like I said, we're choosing simple, flexible systems, right? Like we can change our rates in the system we've designed on a time, right? We get them in a spreadsheet from our underwriter. We can put them in and be faster than our underwriter. Like yeah. we have the ability to do that. Like at some point we'll scale that maybe, but I think culturally, I don't think we will. I've got engineers who can go and glue together a transformer and glue it to our data and then take the output and put it into another system and then integrate it and wrap it with some Python. Like doing that at a larger insurer with an IT background with maybe a small engineering department, um, there's just so much more friction to get, get it done. Mm. Well, it get visibility on what to do and how to do it. So something that I can do in an afternoon with my team might take, you know, three months of meetings. And that's not, oh, 
problem, I think, for the big insurers, right? But it is it's definitely a trade-off you have to make at scale. Hmm. Yes, interesting, super interesting. And, you know, I kind of mentioned earlier around founders or CEOs bringing in, you know, because you've been with Pumpkin from zero to one and, and one to a hundred, you've, you've came in as you've built the pipes and the blocks and now you're you're probably zoomed out in comparison, you've got your engineering team. But, you know, one thing I do always come up with um, when we're speaking to, when we get assigned or we have a call with regards to like a search for a CTO, and we're asked for a seed-based business or a Series A-based business, for, and they're looking for a CTO. And then sometimes you kind of navigate the conversation. It's quite apparent that they don't really need a CTO. You know, and you've only officially got the title of CTO Pumpkin, but ostensibly you would have been yeah. acting as CTO for many, many years. But you know, do you, that whole thing about the CTO come in and it'll just fix everything. Like, what do you think the biggest misunderstanding is when it comes to the role of a of a CTO in an early stage startup, like is it just a a title? Like, how do you how would you articulate the value that a CTO brings? Or because sometimes I think that really in reality, all they really need in the early 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 stages is like a, a principal engineer or you know someone with management qualities but is super hands on. Like again, how would you kind of articulate the vision uh, that the value sorry that a CTO can bring for an early stage startup? Is it always necessary to have a CTO? I mean, you're asking a CTO, so, but, so, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you've been all, through that journey, though, you've been that, well, I mean, I've been through the gamut, I mean, you know, without Rain, I was employee number eight in the States, yeah. and, like, and I left there about 500, and, like, uh, Shutterstock, I was in the early, you know, like, just post-IPO, and left about, I think, eight or 900 people, like, uh, and then after that, I went to, like, you know, a, a kind of a, a enterprise SaaS that, like, was just going to live at, you know, like, 40, 50 people, and it's fine, Um in terms of having a CTO at those different stages, yes, it depends on your ambition as mm -hmm. an entrepreneur and where you want your business to go, right? If you're just going to build a nice little business and you're going to, you know, have like, you know, 10 or 50 enterprise contracts that you're dealing with and like, you're just going to roll like that, like maybe you don't. Um, if you're going to go from like 5 million ARR to 15 to 100 million ARR, you would do well to have someone earlier on, not just yeah. writing code. And like, I've done that, I, I wrote, it's funny, the first time I've written code at Pumpkin in like a year and a half and deployed it to production was last week. Um, right. I was like, oh, I still got it, I'm a real boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but on that, um, it, it's, if you leave engineers alone, the wrong engineers. Right, mm. and you're buying big enterprise engineers, and you're bringing them down to your your little startup. They're going to build you cathedrals, yeah. which you don't. Like the metaphor uses, like sometimes you just need a room full of chairs <laughs> for people to talk in. <laughs> Oftentimes, you don't necessarily have the talent on staff to be able to vet that they're making decisions that are in the immediate interest of the business. Right, we're looking at let's say. Let's say we're building a product that starts off with just having 30 customers. Well, the engineer might start off there, but they might start thinking about building something that has 30,000 customers. And then you're bringing in engineering efforts and costs, and you're not right-sizing the thing that you're building to the size of your market. And so you need to be able to understand, you know, okay, if I know in five years or 10 years, I'm going to be at 100 million ARR or whatever it's going to be, it's going to be a billion-dollar company, right? You need to be able to have 
someone who can step backwards, bring the right people in at the right time. You know, like I need to bring in directors because I can't manage my engineers directly anymore. And like, I need to be able to have the appropriate process at the right time. If you as a garage band insure tech startup operator uh, makes those wrong decisions early, just for the cost of a, you know, CTO salary, um, some equity ideally, um, <laughs> like, um, those decisions compound over time. And then you're mired while you're trying to be fast because you've built a thing that you can't get out of the way from. I've made that mistake <laughs> hmm. uh, where I built too far into the future or I haven't built enough um, for now. And it's just like, you know, spreadsheets and like, you know, yeah. type forms. And yeah. bringing that type of experience to bear, if your ambitions are right, the sooner you can make that investment. Like one of the wonderful things, and one of the other reasons I came to Pumpkin was, um, I think of it like we were kind of like K-pop boy banded into existence. We started, almost all the leadership team is the same one that we started with, right? Wow. Um, and it was all like, you know, grownups on day one. It was, it was we all kind of knew what we needed to do and what we wanted to do. And like, we moved forward with that. Like, um, I worked at startups where it's like, you know, the VP of, uh, you know, the people team started off as the personal assistant of like the CEO and they're still learning. And then you yeah. have poor processes and stuff like that. It's fine if you're only going to scale to 100 people and you can do that. Mm. Yeah, that building the plane whilst you're flying it kind of works to a certain point. But yeah, it's interesting that everyone, the way you describe the leadership team from day one to now at Pumpkin, you know, I think... um I think it's a kind of final point, you know, it's clearly, you know, from your experience and I've known you, as I say, for a relatively long time and we've had many conversations, you know, you're someone that's so ingrained in, in defining and building a, a culture and the culture's never fully built, you know, even in, at Pumpkin right now with the recent acquisition, there's a there's probably a new phase of culture coming in, but it's about maintaining that culture that, that you want within your engineering and product division. Like, <laughs> for you, is it... You know how do and and the, and the way the market's changed as well in terms of how engineering and product teams are now setting up going into twenty twenty four and a very turbulent eighteen months or so with layoffs and restructuring. Like, what do you feel? What do you feel? How how do you feel companies sorry can can set themselves up for for you know hiring success and and scaling in twenty twenty four? Probably just specific to engineering and product. I would I would put that to you. Hiring success, or that's a bit of a journey you want. So you, you always yeah in, ter in, in terms <laughs> yeah in terms of in terms of scaling and and hiring, you know, setting themselves up for success, and you know, again, someone that's been through a real evolution, and again, I appreciate it's different to companies' vision and goals, but you know, just going into this year, like, do you feel like there's anything that you know early stage companies should kind of take note of or anything that you feel you've learned over the years that you could kind of yeah. pass on? Well, I mean, culture doesn't just happen, right? You've got to be deliberate sure. about it. Um, and and culture is usually, I, what's the quote I love? It's like, um, culture is what like the most senior person in the room, how they react to something kind of when someone mm. misbehaves. Um, but I, I think beyond that, you've just got to be deliberate about your culture and recognize that it needs to evolve. You hit a hundred people, like, you know, I remember being in like the early standups at Pumpkin when there was just a handful of us, right? And like the entire company would have a day with standup and you could, you know, see everyone. And now it's more people and it's distributed post-COVID, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, I think one of the early experiences I had in terms of rapid growth, mm -hmm. um, and I won't name the company, but like 
we were very early and then we grew really quick to the extent that we were hiring from other companies and chain hiring. And at the rate that we were hiring, we were bringing purple people into the organization uh, much faster than we were able to inculcate them with our cultural ideals, right? Mm. And they weren't in the meetings with all the people who founded the culture and were trying to be exemplars for it. And as you're doing that chain hiring, um, you start hiring in cultures from other companies. Yeah. And then you got pockets of divergent cultures. And, you know, it gets away from a CEO really quick if you're, you know, bringing in 10, 25, 30, 40, 100 people a week without like a really tight onboarding process and very clear mission and goal statements. Um, I'd say that that was a hard one to watch. Yeah. Uh, people making decisions like that's not what we want to do here. Oh, well, that's what you did at your last company. Well, that's not mm -hmm. here. Um, that creates just so much friction and it didn't kill the company. It was a good company. It still is a good company. But um, I think you just have to be very deliberate. And then as you're hiring, like my, my casting thesis earlier, right? Like the thing is, is if you're hiring Hamlet, I know the story of Hamlet. I want to hire someone who has a similar agreement about who Hamlet was. So that as I'm working with that person to tell the story of Hamlet, I don't have to worry about who Hamlet is, right? They're going to evoke Hamlet, think about Hamlet have for breakfast. But like, <laughs> there's less friction in terms of was Hamlet crazy or not, right? Um, yeah. Like, was Hamlet in love with Laertes? Was Hamlet in love with Ophelia? Who knows, <laughs> right? But like, if there's a divergent point between me and my Hamlet, that's going to cause more friction for the business. So I think very deliberately about hiring. And then yeah. when you're hiring fast, you got to have the apparatus in place um, to back it up. Mm, I think that'll ring true, you know, with with many people listening to this. And and I think very indicative of the market as well and how to grow going into 2024. Um, but Nathan, that mm -hmm. brings us to the end of this. Look, thank you for... Uh, for your time and for coming on, I know you're a you're a busy man. And uh, yeah, we did it though. We 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 made it. We made we it. We done it. But we um, yeah, it's always a busy it's a busy time at Pumpkin and all of that. So again, it's it's much appreciated, and um, this was a lot of fun. So thank you. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that you were able to you know persevere. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs>